Section One of Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain by Archibald Henderson. Section One. Introductory. In the past, the attitude of the average American toward Mark Twain has been most characteristically expressed in a sort of complacent and chuckling satisfaction. There was pride in the thought that America, the colossal, had produced a superman of humor. The national vanity was touched when the nations of the world rocked and roared with laughter over the comically primitive barbarisms of the funny man from the wild and woolly west. Mark Twain was lightly accepted as an international comedian, magically evoking the laughter of a world. It would be a misstatement to affirm that the works of Mark Twain were reckoned as falling within the charmed circle of literature. They were not reckoned in connection with literature at all. The fingers of one hand number those who realized in Mark Twain one of the supreme geniuses of our age even in the event of his death when the floodgates of critical chatter have been thrown emptily wide there is room for grave doubt whether a realization of the unique and incomparable position of mark twain in the republic of letters has fully dawned upon the american consciousness the literatures of england and europe do not posit an aesthetic embracing work of such primitive crudity and apparently unstudied frankness as the work of mark twain it is for american criticism to posit this more comprehensive aesthetic and to demonstrate that the work of mark twain is the work of a great artist it would be absurd to maintain that mark twain's appeal to posterity depends upon the dicta of literary criticism it would be absurd to deny that upon america rests the task of demonstrating to a world willing enough to be convinced that Mark Twain is one of the supreme and imperishable glories of American literature. At any given moment in history, the number of living writers to whom can be attributed what a Frenchman would call mondial éclat is surprisingly few. It was not so many years ago that Rudyard Kipling, with vigorous imperialistic note, won for himself the unquestioned title of militant spokesman for the Anglo-Saxon race that fame has suffered eclipse in the passage of time today bernard shaw has a fame more world-wide than that of any other literary figure in the british isles his dramas are played from madrid to helsingfors from budapest to stockholm from vienna to st petersburg from berlin to buenos aires recently zola ibsen and tolstoy constituted the literary hierarchy of the world according to popular verdict. Since Zola and Ibsen have passed from the scene, Tolstoy experts unchallenged the profoundest influence upon the thought and consciousness of the world. This is an influence streaming less from his works than from his life, less from his intellect than from his conscience. The literati bemoan the artist of an epoch prior to what is art, the whole world pays tribute to the passionate integrity of Tolstoy's moral aspiration. While this book was going through the press, news had come of the death of Tolstoy. Until yesterday, Mark Twain vied with Tolstoy for the place of most widely read and most genuinely popular author in the world. In a sense not easily understood, 
Mark Twain has a place in the minds and hearts of the great mass of humanity throughout the civilized world, which, if measured in terms of affection, sympathy, and spontaneous enjoyment, is without a parallel. The robust nationalism of Kipling challenges the defiant opposition of foreigners, whilst his repertorial realism offends many an inviolable canon of European taste. With all his incandescent wit and comic irony, Bernard Shaw makes his most vivid impression upon the upper strata of society. His legendary character, moreover, is perpetually standing in the light of the serious reformer. Tolstoy's works are Russia's greatest literary contribution to posterity, and yet his literary fame has suffered through his extravagant ideals, the magnificent futility of his inconsistency, and the almost maniacal mysticism of his unrealizable hopes. If Mark Twain makes a more deeply, more comprehensively popular appeal, it is doubtless because he makes use of the universal solvent of humor. That idolin of which Aldrich speaks, a compact of good humor, robust sanity, and large-minded humanity, has diligently gone about in near and distant places, everywhere making warm and lifelong friends of folk of all nationalities who have never known Mark Twain in the flesh. The French have a way of speaking of an author's public as if it were a select and limited segment of the conglomerate of readers. And in a country like France, with its innumerable literary cliques and sects, there is some reason for the phraseology. In reality, the author appeals to many different publics or classes of readers, in proportion to the many-sidedness of the reader's human interests and the catholicity of his tastes. Mark Twain first opens the eyes of many a boy to the power of the great human book, warm with the actuality of experience and the lifeblood of the heart. By humorous inversion he points the sound moral and vivifies the right principle for the youth to whom the dawning consciousness of morality is the first real psychological discovery of life. With hearty laughter at the stupid irritations of self-conscious virtue, with ironic scorn for the frigid puritanism of mechanical morality, Mark Twain enraptures that innumerable company of the sophisticated who have chafed under the omnipresent influence of a good example and stilled the painless pangs of an unruly conscience with splendid satire for the base, with shrill condemnation for tyranny and oppression, with the scorpion lash for the equivocal, the fraudulent, and the insincere, Mark Twain inspires the growing body of reformers in all countries who would remedy the ills of democratic government with the knife of publicity. The wisdom of human experience and of sagacious tolerance in forming his books for the young provokes the question whether these books are not more apposite to the tastes of experienced age than to the fancies of callow youth. The navvy may rejoice in life on the Mississippi. Youth and age may share without jealousy the abounding fun and primitive naturalness of Huckleberry Finn. True lovers of adventure may revel in the masterly narrative of Tom Sawyer, the artist may bestow his critical meed of approval upon the beauty of Joan of Arc. 
the moralist may heartily validate the ethical lesson of the man that corrupted hadleyburg anyone may pay the tribute of irresistible explosions of laughter to the horseplay of roughing it the colossal extravagance of the innocents abroad the irreverence and iconoclism of that yankee intruder into the hallowed confines of camelot all may rejoice in the spontaneity and refreshment of truth spiritually cooperate in forthright condemnation of fraud peculation and sham and breathe gladly the fresh and bracing air of sincerity sanity and wisdom the stevedore on the dock the motorman on the street-car the newsboy on the street the riverman on the mississippi all speak with exuberant affection in memory of that quaint figure in his white suit his ruddy face shining through wreaths of tobacco smoke and surmounted by a great halo of silvery hair in one day as mark twain was fond of relating an emperor and a portee vied with each other in tributes of admiration and esteem for this man and his works it is mark twain's imperishable glory not simply that his name is the most familiar of that of any author who has lived in our own times but that it is remembered with infinite irrepressible zest we think of mark twain not as other celebrities but as the man whom we knew and loved said dr van dyke in his memorial address we remember the realities which made his life worth while the strong and natural manhood that was in him the depth and tenderness of his affections his laughing enmity to all shams and pretenses his long and faithful witness to honesty and fair dealing those who know the story of mark twain's career know how bravely he faced hardships and misfortune how loyally he toiled for years to meet a debt of conscience following the injunction of the new testament to provide not only things honest but things honorable in the sight of all men those who know the story of his friendships and his family life know that he was one who loved much and faithfully even unto the end those who know his work as a whole know that under the lambent and irrepressible humor which was his gift there was a foundation of serious thoughts and noble affections and desires nothing could be more false than to suppose that the presence of humor means the absence of depth and earnestness there are elements of the unreal the absurd the ridiculous in this strange incongruous world which must seem humorous even to the highest mind of these the bible says he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the almighty shall hold them in derision but the mark of this higher humor is that it does not laugh at the weak the helpless the true the innocent only at the false the pretentious the vain the hypocritical 
Mark Twain himself would be the first to smile at the claim that his humor was infallible, but we say without doubt that he used his gift not for evil, but for good. The atmosphere of his work is clean and wholesome. He made fun without hatred. He laughed many of the world's false claimants out of court, and entangled many of the world's false witnesses in the net of ridicule. In his best books and stories, colored with his own experiences, he touched the absurdities of life with penetrating, but not unkindly, mockery, and made us feel somehow the infinite pathos of life's realities. No one can say that he ever failed to reverence the purity, the frank, joyful, genuine nature of the little children, of whom Christ said, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now he is gone, and our thoughts of him are tender, grateful, proud. We are glad of his friendship, glad that he expressed so richly one of the great elements in the temperament of America, glad that he has left such an honorable record as a man of letters, and glad also for his own sake that after many and deep sorrows he is at peace and we trust happy in the fuller light rest after toil port after stormy seas death after life doth greatly please we cannot live always on the cold heights of the sublime the thin air stifles I have forgotten who said it. We cannot flush always with the high ardor of the signers of the Declaration, nor remain at the level of the address at Gettysburg, nor cry continually, Oh, beautiful, my country! Yet in the long, dull interspans between these sacred moments, we need someone to remind us that we are a nation for in the dead vast and middle of the years insidious foes are lurking anemic refinements cosmopolitan decadencies the egotistic and usurping pride of great cities the cold sickening of the heart at the reiterated exposures of giant fraud and corruption when our countrymen migrate because we have no kings or castles we are thankful to anyone who will tell us what we can count on. When they complain that our soil lacks the humanity essential to great literature, we are grateful even for the firing of a national joke heard round the world. And when Mark Twain, robust, big-hearted, gifted with the divine power to use words, makes us all laugh together, builds true romances with prairie fire and western clay, and shows us that we are at one on all the main points, we feel that he has been appointed by Providence to see to it that the precious ordinary self of the Republic shall suffer no harm. Stuart P. Sherman, 
Mark Twain. The Nation, May 12, 1910. End of Introductory.